where we're going to start today, we kind of have two main themes. And the first main theme that I want us to start with is that Jesus challenges us here, right? Jesus is on his way to the cross. He's on his way to Jerusalem. Jesus challenges us to believe in God. We see that in the Gospels. We see that in Jesus' messages. We see that in his teaching. He's still in his discipleship discourse here, chapters 9 through 11. But Jesus challenges us to believe in God. But we also serve a God and, and Jesus who understands doubt. Right? He understands our doubt. Let's read the text and, and, and allow it to, to speak into what we're talking about here. Verse 15 of chapter 11 is where we're going to start. Anybody happy to be here? Did I already ask you that? Did I ask you that already? Okay, good. Well, I'm happy to be here, and I hope you are too. Verse 15, And they came to Jerusalem, and he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. I love this verse. I love this verse. It shows that Jesus was passionate about protecting the things of God. And we're going to see why in just a moment, but I love this verse because it, 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 it flips, not, not, to, not to overuse this, right, but it flips the tables over of like the Jesus, you know, the, the, the Jesus and, the, and, the, and the clean and the, you know, all, all those different things. Jesus was passionate. Right? He was passionate about protecting his people. Okay, verse 16. And he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. And he was teaching them and saying to them, Is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations? But you have made it a den of robbers. And the chief priests and the scribes heard it and were seeking a way to destroy him. For they feared him because all the crowd was astonished at his teaching. And when evening came... They went out of the city. As they passed by in the morning, they saw the fig tree withered away to its roots. And Peter remembered and said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree that you cursed has withered. And Jesus answered them, saying, Have faith in God. Truly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, Be taken up and thrown into the sea, and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will come to pass, it will be done for him. Therefore I tell you, Whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it, and it will be yours. And whenever you stand praying, forgive if you have anything against anyone, so that your Father also who is in heaven may forgive you your trespasses. Now I want to stop there. We're going to get to 27 through the end of the chapter in just a few minutes, but there's two valuable truths here that I want to point out about Jesus, all right? Sound good? All right, good, good, good. Andrew Murray, who um, as a scholar, said this, Christ actually meant prayer to be the great power by which his church should do its work, and the neglect of prayer is the great reason the church has not greater power over the masses. The power of the church to truly bless rests on intercession or prayer, asking and receiving heavenly gifts to carry to people. The true power of the church rests on prayer. The true power of the church rests on prayer. Mark is giving lessons on faith, on prayer, on forgiveness right here in this text. The very things that the people should have found in the temple. That's what's fascinating about this. 
The things that Mark is highlighting here, the things that Mark is teaching are the very things that people should have found through God's temple. We, we see that today, don't we? Like the very things that, 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 that frustrate us the most as Christians, the basics of the Christian faith are the things that we've neglected so that we can get to the deeper things. Right? So that we can get to the deeper things. And then when we haven't, we haven't built a foundation on truth to be able to handle those deeper things, and that's why we just get confused and frustrated and bored and, and lost in the whole thing. And so these are the very lessons that the people should have found through the temple. Jesus didn't just cleanse the temple, he cursed it. He didn't just cleanse the temple, he cursed it. That's huge for us to see. It had failed in the divine assignment. What this was built to achieve and to accomplish had failed and it would be destroyed. With no fruit, its use was at an end. Don't you just see that? With no fruit, its use was at an end. And God would remove it in less than a generation. The Romans destroyed Jerusalem and the temple. And so Jesus uses this opportunity to teach his disciples two valuable truths. And the first one is this. Put your faith in this Savior. Put your faith in this Savior. And so he uses the tree in verses 20 to 25 to illustrate the temple that he talks about in verses 15 through 20. When they passed by the fig tree the next day, it was dead. Now, if you think about the story of Jonah, God had told Jonah to weep over what? Lost people. Jonah chapter 4. Not a plant, because Jonah was all frustrated that the plant that he was getting shade from had withered and died. And God said, you're more concerned about this plant than the people that you just preached to. And revival happened, and they turned, they, they, and, and, and how often, how often we get distracted from the main thing and put it on the temporary thing. Come on now. Come on now. And so, and so the same thing's happening here. Jesus had asked Jonah to weep over lost souls, and instead he was weeping over a plant. And Jesus says, Jesus says to weep over a dead temple, not over a dead tree. Peter says, look, the tree here is cursed. And Jesus is like, yeah, what about the temple? Right? What about the temple? Because it had failed to produce its fruit. Jesus' response at first glance seems out of place. He replies to them and says, Have faith in God, I assure you. If anyone says to this mountain, be lifted up and thrown into the sea, and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will happen, it will be done. Consider it finished. Therefore, I tell you all the things you pray and ask for, believe that you have received them, and you'll have them. James, the half-brother of Jesus, talks about this in, in James chapter 1. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God. But when you ask, ask in faith. Don't be like a wave of the sea tossed to and fro by the wind, but ask in faith. Ask in faith. One of the, one of the biggest things... One of the biggest things I've noticed, and I don't want you to get confused by this, um, um, I, I, you've probably heard this, I heard it, uh, some folks on the radio talking about this this past week, right? That, that you can manifest things. Have you heard this? Right? There's this new, fat, there's this new belief that you, can just, that you can just manifest things. You manifest that you get this house in this housing market, and you'll get it. Good luck. Right? Good luck. 
Let me, let, me, let, me just, let me just kind of set the record straight on this. You can't manifest anything without the power of God. In fact, you can't. He can. And so he'll either, he'll either answer your prayer or he'll change your perspective. Because just because you go and you pray, God, you know what? I could really use a million dollars. I mean, God, think about all the things I could bless. Think about all the trucks of food I could, I could provide for. Think about all the things I could do if I didn't have to. Well, that doesn't, that doesn't mean a million bucks is going to show up in your mailbox, Ken. It could happen, right? And so, and so we've got to be clear here that the source, therefore I tell you all the things you pray and ask for, believe that you received them and you'll have them. Have faith in God. Anybody ever heard of Hudson Taylor? Hudson Taylor said this, God uses men who are weak and feeble enough to lean on him. God uses men who are weak and feeble enough to lean on him. He who is faithful when the religious establishment and its institutions fail. Trust the one who judges hypocrisy with severity and extends amazing grace to those who seek it in faith. Trust the one. Trust the one who judges hypocrisy with severity and extends amazing grace to those who seek it in faith. Have mountain-moving faith that does not doubt, but asks in prayer. Now, one of the things we've got to wrestle with here, because if you're anything like me, you're, you're thinking about mountains a lot right now, right? Because hiking season is right around the corner. Whew. Get that ankle fixed, buddy. Yeah, get that ankle fixed, okay, right? Because I think about Mount Washington, I think about Mount Katahdin. Okay, if I have faith enough, right, tell Mount Katahdin to go in the ocean right near Acadia. Believe it enough, and it will happen. Now, so we've got to come to grips, right? The mountain here is a hyperbole, okay? The mountain is a hyperbole. It represents, though... What appears to be impossible, what appears to be immovable, beyond our finite ability. Good. This is where faith begins. We talk about it all the time. What are we believing in God for that if He doesn't show up, it's not going to happen? What are we believing in God for in faith that if He doesn't make it happen, it's not going to happen? The numbers on this mortgage, the numbers, uh, the numbers in your own financial account, the, the, the numbers never make sense. My pastor used to tell me all the time, if your church budget makes sense, you're doing it wrong. Sorry, executive team. Believe in that relationship where if God doesn't re intervene, restoration won't happen. It doesn't make sense. Forgiveness and grace to those degrees to which we fail and we mess up and we hurt and we damage and we bruise and we batter and yet the forgiveness and the grace is extended and it's overwhelming. It doesn't make sense. That's a mountain. That's a mountain. That's where faith begins. Believing faith taps into God's power to accomplish His purpose. Andrew Murray also said, we have a God who delights in impossibilities. We serve a God. We have a God who delights in possibilities. 
in impossibilities. True and believing prayer is not attempting, get this, to get God to change his will to fit our plans. Okay? It's to align our heart with his. It is a passionate pursuit to see God's plans accomplished in us. Your will, not mine. Your will, not mine. Your will, not mine. Prayer is not conjuring God up like some genie in a bottle obligated to grant us whatever we wish. Amen? When we pray with mountain-moving faith, our God will give us what we need to glorify His name. So when we pray... So when we pray, we trust not only in His power to give us what we ask, but also in His wisdom to give us what we need. To give us what we need. I trust Him enough to have Him turn me down if that's what He chooses. That means we may receive answers we don't want. That may mean we receive answers we don't want. That may mean we find things that we're not looking for. That may mean that doors are opened and closed that we don't expect. Come on now, y'all with me. But prayer helps us receive those things in faith. Okay, one more, one more thing we've got we to cross before we move on here from prayer, okay? Y'all here? All right, so we're talking about faith in a Savior. I want you to look at verse uh, uh, 16, 17. And he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. And he was teaching them and saying to them, Is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations, but you have made it a den of robbers. Now, God, Jesus here is talking about the temple. You've made it a den of robbers, and this is supposed to be a house of prayer. The fruit here is damaged. Where, but, but, but a lot of people come and use this, use this, I'm going to stand up for this one, Henry, use this against the church, right? Saying, 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 my house is to be called a house of prayer. You've made it a den of robbers. Where did Jesus go to the cross so that he could dwell? In us. Jesus replaces the temple with you, with me. As an individual. And so, and so before, it's the old adage, right? You point one finger at someone else, you got three pointing back at you. So before we accuse the big C church of turning the house of God into a den of robbers, where's your heart? How's your prayer life? Is your temple... A house of prayer. Because I pray that Summit Church is a house of prayer. I'm not trying to get out of that. I'm not trying to turn, I'm not, I'm not trying to turn it back. On, well, I guess I am trying to turn it back on you. But not as an excuse or a cop-out. It's just that we need you to be a temple full of prayer and reliance on God that if He doesn't intervene, your marriage will suffer. Your parenting will suffer. Your finances will suffer. We, as the body, will suffer. We need you to be a temple that relies on the Holy Spirit for strength, for health, for hope, for, for, for help. We need you. And out of the overflow of you being a house of prayer, guess what? This becomes a house of prayer. 
This becomes a house of prayer. And we feed off each other in that, right? We feed off each other. Your reliance on God is inspirational and other people relying on God. But let's not flip the script. Jesus went to the cross so that he could dwell in each and every one of you. And so when he's talking about my house is to be a house of prayer, he's talking about us as individuals now. Post-temple. Make sense? Put your faith in that Savior. The second truth that Mark addresses here that Jesus talked about is to be forgiving like this Savior. Look at verse 25. And whenever you stand praying, forgive if you have anything against anyone so that your Father also who is in heaven may forgive you your trespasses. Okay, hold up now. Hold up. Anybody like me? Where you just want to throw the yeah buts all over this verse. Okay? And whenever you stand praying, forgive. If you have anything against anyone. Yeah, but what about this? Yeah, but they did that. If you have anything against anyone, forgive. So that your Father also who is in heaven may forgive you your trespasses. All right, let's get to the truth, and then, we'll, then we'll, we'll, we might talk a little bit more about the yeah buts, okay? We can forgive because we've been forgiven through the work of Jesus on the cross. Truth? Truth. Forgiveness, so freely and graciously extended to us, can now be graciously and freely extended to others. The theme of prayer finds its connection in the fact that God's temple, which is now, which is what we are now, we just established that, is to be a house of prayer for all nations. Jesus is such a temple, and we are such a temple, extending the same forgiveness that we have received from the God we now call Father. From the God that we now call Father. So the temple has transitioned to us, and so the question here is, are we a barren fig tree? The fig tree that once produced fruit, that once gave life, that once was visible in its, in its liveliness. Are we a barren fig tree? Am I? Are our churches? Is Summit Church? Let me be specific. Can you forgive those you once hated and who have wronged you? And can you get the gospel to them? Can you? Can we? Can you remember, can you remove, can you remove any and all barriers that would keep them from a genuine face-to-face encounter with the Savior for all nations? I received a phone call last night. It's amazing how unifying March Madness is. For the most part. Talked talk to a dear friend in Charleston, South Carolina, I haven't talked to in a long time. And we talked about the game yesterday, North Carolina game. It was a good game. We beat a number one seed, yada, 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 all those things. I thought we were done when it went into overtime, but this isn't a commentary about the basketball game, okay? And then the conversation turned to family. How's your family? And then the conversation turned to church. How's your, how's your church after the last two years? 
And he said, my prayer, and, and, and I told him all about you. I told him sp some, some specific things and all that. He knows some of your names and all. Anyway, 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 not important, <laughs> not important, right? <clears throat> and, um, and he said, my prayer for churches today is that God would restore the remnant of his church for his mission to go forth. Because people are more receptive to the gospel than he has ever seen in his lifetime right now. But we will not see that if we don't embrace and refocus on his mission and stay distracted by each other. Direct quote. I'm not putting words in his mouth. People are more open and receptive to the gospel than ever in his experience. He was a pastor for 15 years in Michigan. Now he's working with FCA down in Charleston, South Carolina. He's been engaged in church, been my pastor um, for 27 years, 20, 25, 26 years. He's had a voice into my life. Can we forgive those? Remove any and all barriers that would keep us, that would distract us from the mission, that would keep us from a genuine face-to-face -face encounter with Jesus. Will we remove any and all barriers? Will we pay any price necessary that all the nations might hear of Jesus? There's a missionary named C.T. Studd. What a name. Can you imagine having a last name Studd? Out on the court. Studd shoots. Anyway. He said this. Some wish to live within the sound of a chapel bell. I want to run a rescue shop within a yard of hell. What a place to plant a temple. What a place to plant a temple. That's a great place to plant a life with a sign that reads, A Savior for all nations. Come on in. All, and I would probably underline all, all are welcomed. None will be turned away. Do we believe that? Do we believe that? Even with the yeah buts, do we believe that? All right, let's look at verses 27 through 33, the end of chapter 11. We'll draw the, we'll bring it together. And they came again to Jerusalem. And as he was walking in the temple, the chief priests and the scribes and the elders came to him. And they said to him, by what authority are you doing these things? Or who gave you authority to do them? And Jesus said to them, I will ask you one question. What boldness? Answer me. And I will tell you by what authority I do these things. Was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? Answer me. And they discussed it with one another, saying, If we say from heaven, he will say, well, Why then did you not believe him? But shall we say from man? They were afraid of the people, for they all held that John really was a prophet. So they answered Jesus, We do not know. 
these religious leaders that had everything together that were so, they're trying to trap Jesus here now respond, we don't know. And Jesus said to them, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things because Jesus knew what was on the other side of that. Right? Let's, let's talk about this for just a minute. Okay? Because people have a hard time G- trusting Jesus. We have a hard time trusting Jesus, not because he's not worthy, but, but because of the hardness of our own hearts. We have a hard time trusting Jesus, not because he's not worthy, but because of the hardness of our own hearts. In Matthew chapter 23, we find some of the saddest words found in the whole Bible. Jerusalem, Jerusalem, she who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her. How often I wanted to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, yet you were not willing. See, your house is left to desolate, has left you to desolate. Has left to you desolate, excuse me. For I tell you, you will never see me again until you say, He who comes in the name of the Lord is the blessed one. The phrase, you were not willing, has the feel of a clock that strikes midnight. Doesn't it? Time has run out. Jesus has just cleansed and cursed the temple for its corruptions and abuse. And in response, the the religious leaders were looking for a way to destroy him. You would think that Jesus would avoid the public eye. You would think that Jesus might go into hiding, but he doesn't. He returns to Jerusalem. Even more, he returns to the temple with courage. With courage. He knows what's coming. He's embracing it. And so he returns to the temple with courage, looking for a fight. Not a physical one. He doesn't have the boxing gloves, but a spiritual one that will place his claims and identity front and center. It's time to come out with it. And these verses ultimately see common reasons that people are not willing to follow Jesus. And the truth that we find here in these three reasons that people have a hard time trusting Jesus is that not much has changed in 2,000 years. The same kinds of reasons cause people to refuse him today. And the first one is this that we see in verses 27 to 28. They don't want to submit to his authority. Authority is a big deal, isn't it? They don't want to submit to his authority. Verse 27, they came again to Jerusalem as he was walking in the temple. The chief priests and the scribes and the elders came to him and they said to him, by what authority, this was important to them, are you doing these things or who gave you the authority to do them? Now, the, 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 the priests and the scribes and the elders, they had the run of the temple. And so Jesus coming in and flipping the tables, who was he to do this in our house? Who was he to do this in our house. They don't want to submit to his authority. Jesus came again to Jerusalem. At some point, the religious authorities showed, showed up. Now get this. If you're taking notes, write this down. This is fascinating. These religious authorities who exercised both political and religious authority in Israel, that's important to know, political and religious authority in Israel, they were the authority. Everything started and ended with them. It consisted of 71 men led by the actual high priest. Their power was enormous. Their authority was enormous. You didn't question these guys. 71 men. There was their first problem. Come on, ladies, it's safe. That's a a good place, ladies, to shout amen. (laughs) Their power was enormous, and they were super sensitive, sound familiar, to anything that could threaten their authority. 
Men, what's one of the main reasons we get our back up? When someone questions our authority. Still true today? Y'all are scared to talk because it just got real. Right? Super sensitive to anything that could threaten their authority. And Jesus was clearly a threat. They question him regarding his authority, which clearly they reject. In the immediate context of their interrogation and his actions during the previous day in the temple, where he's turning tables and he's saying, you know, you've turned this house of prayer into a den of robbers. In essence, they're asking, who gave you the right to wreak havoc in our house? Who gave you the right to wreak havoc in our office? Who gave you the right to come up in our temple and wreak havoc? However... This is not the first time that the issue of authority has come up. In Mark chapter 1, verse 22, they were astonished at his teaching because unlike the scribes, he was teaching them as one having authority. Mark 1, 27, then they were all amazed, so they began to argue with one another, saying, what is this? A new teaching with authority. He commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey him. Mark chapter 2, verses 10 and 11, but so that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he told the paralytic, I tell you, Get up, pick up your mat, and go home. It's interesting, they're struggling. They didn't understand what to do with his authority in the early chapters of Mark, in the early chapters of Jesus' ministry, but it wasn't in the temple, so it was okay. It didn't, it didn't wreck their status quo. It, did, it, wasn't, it wasn't close enough to home. It wasn't close enough to home. So even though he's flipping the value system upside down, even though he's claiming this authority early on, talk about a short ministry, it didn't bother them as much because it didn't affect them as much. But now, in the place where they are supposed to have authority, in the place where they're super sensitive over the, over the authority that they have, going and, 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 and for good reason. I mean, they, they were responsible to go before God on your behalf, on the people's behalf. This is the way that it had worked for years and years and years. Yet, they knew. They knew the promise of another Savior coming who would claim that authority. And they probably thought like us. Uh, we've got time. There's no way that Savior would come now. We've got time. There's no way that He would come in our time because we've got this authority and so we want to exercise it. We have finally arrived. I'm one of the 71. Don't come rock the boat during my tenure. And so, and so, it's interesting because this isn't, the, this isn't the first time. And this man teaches with authority, casts out demons with authority, heals with authority. He does what only God can do. But now that it's happened in the temple, they want to see his ordination papers. <laughs> now that it's affected them, they want to see his license. They want to see his credentials. They're not, voted, they're not motivated by willingness to know who He is. 
th- th- that's not the point. They don't really want to know who he is. They don't really want to know where he's come from. They want, to know, they want to know his credentials and why he feels like he has the authority to be there. They have no interest in bringing their lives under his authority. They have all the interest in getting him out. Their goal is to embarrass him. Their goal is to discredit him. If he admits that he has no religious credentials and that he's acting in his own authority, he will probably lose the respect and following of the people and they can be finished with this troublemaker. But on the other hand, if he makes a claim to divine authority, then they can charge him with blasphemy, they can arrest him, and they can start the process for his destruction. Either way, he's finished. Accomplished. And so for us, the question of authority is important. We all have a source of authority in our lives. No, I don't. Yes, you do. Yes, you do. We all have a source of authority in our lives. Someone or something that guides us, that drives us, something that rules us. And for most of us, like the Sanhedrin, it's ourselves. It's ourselves. We're not really interesting. We're not really interested in surrounding that rule to anyone else. In Mere Christianity, C.S. Lewis wrote this, The more we get what we now call ourselves out of the way and let Jesus take over, the more truly ourselves we become. In that sense, our real selves are waiting for us in Him. What a beautiful picture. It is no good trying to be myself without Him. The more I resist Him and try to live on my own, the more I become dominated by my own heredity and bring an upbringing and surroundings and natural desires. Give up yourself. And you will find your real self. Lose your life and you will save it. Submit with every fiber of your being and you will find eternal life. Keep back nothing. Here's an authority worth submitting to. What what a tragedy that so many say no. I mean, Paul keeps with the theme in in Corinthians, in my weakness, he's made strong. It's so countercultural, so counterintuitive to celebrate our weaknesses, to live in our weaknesses. We all want to show off our strengths, bring what we offer. Because in our weaknesses, we admit that we need help. That we need help. Authority. The second reason that people struggle to trust Jesus, they refuse to examine honestly the evidence. They refuse to check the reputation. Look at verses 29 through 32 again. Jesus said to them, I'll ask you one question. I love this. Answer me. Jesus is getting bold with these 71. I mean, the disciples are probably cowering in the corner. Like, Peter's probably back there like, I don't know what to do here, because I'm going to have to choose a side here in a second. I'm uncomfortable. I mean, the, the, you know, all, all these things, right? And so it's one on 71. Answer me, he says, and I will tell you by what authority I do these things. Was the baptism of John, was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? Answer me, says again. And they discussed it with one another, saying, If we say from heaven, he will say, Why then did you not believe? But shall we say from man? They were afraid of the people, for they all held that John was really a prophet. Now, it's important to understand this to the the, the nth degree. This question 
asking the religious leaders is on one level understandable and even wise. After all, we're seldom helped in spiritual matters by the religious running around and stirring up trouble. We're seldom helped with that. However, when there's much evidence that would indicate that they're the real deal, we reject the evidence. Jesus would have been a masterful chess player. Anybody play chess? Anybody ever play chess? I, pl- I, was, I was on the chess club. Not important. <laughs> but Jesus brilliantly makes a counter move here. Pharisees, the, scri- the, the religious leaders, they're trying to catch him. Jesus brilliantly makes a counter move here. It says to them, I'll ask you one question, and I'll tell you. Jesus' counter question was a common debating technique among rabbis in that day. And it exposed their hearts and motives. And what Jesus is doing here is he basically says, let's look at the evidence of the one who paved the way for my coming, John, and with whom I closely align myself. Those who come to Jesus with hostile intentions never receive a direct answer. Their response, the response forces them to think. Jesus commands them twice, answer me. The implication is that they lack courage to give an honest answer. They lack courage to give an honest answer. And so like Jesus, John came preaching a message of repentance. And like Jesus, he bypassed the temple and the, and the official religious authorities. They don't deny the evidence as they huddle up to draft their response. They struggle with how to push it aside, how to set it aside. And Jesus' question is pure genius. He's not being evasive. His argument is basically this. My claim to authority is based on the possibility of a divine authoritative ministry given directly by God without human endorsement. Without a, 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 an ordination certificate. John the Baptist is a perfect example, universally affirmed by the people. They embraced John. Right? Now, if you're unwilling to grant my premise and accept the evidence that I've put before you, then we're at an impasse. And we have nothing further to talk about. If you cannot judge the ministry of John based on the evidence, then you are not qualified to judge me either. Your willful blindness condemns you. The evidence is there. But the hearts of these men will not embrace the evidence. How often do we see this with the people around us? The evidence that God is real, that God loves them, that God cares for them, that God's providing for them is all around them, but they're too blind by their own egos to see it. Or pride to see it. Or authority of their own heart to see it. That's why, that's why so often when, we, when, we're, when we're struggling in, in ministry, we, we, we say, go back to the day of your call. Go back to the moment that God called you. Go back to that because you've gotten off course from your call. In the church, we talk about going back to your first love. Go back to the moment that He saved you. Go back to the day that you gave up and said, I'm going to pursue Christ. Go back to that moment. All those doubts will, will quiet They'll get quieter. Go back to the moment that you came to the end of yourself and the submission of Jesus. The evidence is there, but the the hearts, they, they won't embrace it. They may attempt to put forth a rational argument against Jesus, but in the end, it's an emotional reaction rooted in a fear of losing control. They don't want to lose control. They're struggling on how to answer because they don't want the people to lose hope in them. 
And so their response is fear-driven. We don't know. For so many people, the real problem is not the evidence. The real problem is us and our sin. The idols of the heart are the real issue. Because if I accept that Jesus is the Son of God who died for my sins and was raised from the dead, then my life will never be the same. But I like my life. I'm comfortable. I'm comfortable. So with eyes shut and ears plugged, we don't want to talk about this anymore. So let's not and move on. Number three. I think you get the point. They fear men more than they fear God. Look at verses 32 and 33. But shall we say, from man, they were afraid of the people, for they all held that John was really a prophet, so they knew the evidence. So they answered Jesus, we don't know. And Jesus said to them, neither will I tell you by what authority I'm doing these things. And so few things in life are more paralyzing than fear. Amen? Few things in life are more paralyzing than fear. According to a recent Gallup poll, more than more than uh, more American adults, 51%, everybody say 51%, 51%, fear snakes than any other common possibility that the pollsters suggested. Amen. <laughs> how, many, how many people are afraid of snakes in here? We live in Maine. You don't have to be afraid of snakes. That's why we live in Maine. Fair enough. I'll never forget one of the first summers, uh, it was actually fall, that, uh, that we lived here. People, people said, you don't have to worry about snakes in New England. That's one of the beautiful things about living in New England. I'm in New Hampshire uh, on a trail, on a run, and a snake slithers about two yards in front of me. I have never run so fast in my life. <laughs> Back to the hotel where we were staying. It was, and it was small. And it was just like, oh, hey, how you doing? I'm going to get out of your way. I was just passing on the crosswalk, you know, and just, right? Uh, but but inclu- including all these other things. Uh, what else? Uh, public speaking, 40%. Anybody afraid of public speaking? Me too. <laughs> it's true. Heights, 36%. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm a little afraid of heights, even though I am a height. Um, <laughs> small spaces, being enclosed in small spaces, 34%. Okay, the... the, the Spiders, right there. Woo! Man, have y'all seen these spiders that are apparently going to come out of the airplane this summer? I'm like, what in the world? Talk about, can, you haven't seen that? I'm shocked. You, you've been under a rock for the last couple weeks? Okay, uh, this is a little weird. 21% needles or shots? Okay. We know who didn't get his COVID shot. Okay, um... <laughs> Wow. <laughs> Show us your credit. No. Um, 20% mice. Anybody? Okay, mice. Last one. Flying. 18% Americans. Flying. 18%. Okay, very good. All right. Okay. All right, flying. Okay, back to the text. In this text, isn't that fun? A little, little fun. A little fun. A little fun. In this text, God's word addresses a fear that is common to all people, the fear of man. The fear of man. 
Proverbs 29, 25 says, The fear of man is a snare, but the one who trusts in the Lord is protected. Mark eleven thirty two. 32, let me read it for you one more time. We, but shall we say, from man, they were afraid of the people. For they all knew the evidence that John was really a prophet. That verse lays bare what is at the core of the religious authorities. They were afraid of the crowd. They knew the answer, but they were afraid of the crowd's response. Because everyone thought that John was a genuine prophet. So they beg off, we don't know. We don't know. And so Jesus shuts them down. Neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. Although the parable uh, uh, of, the, of the wicked tenant farmers that follows will give them a big hint. All right, but, but we're going to, we don't have time to get into there. But it's sad, isn't it? What was safe, what was comfortable, was more important to them than what was true and what was right. Their response, we don't know, was a lie motivated by fear. And my question for us this morning is, what are the lies that we're buying into that are motivated by our fear and not truth? What is the lie that you're believing motivated by fear? Because they would rather keep their position and live a lie than submit to Christ and walk in the truth. They had neither sincere motives nor an open mind. So here's the question for all of us to consider. Especially if you're sitting in this room and you've never trusted Jesus as your Savior and submitted your life to His authority. You ready for the question? What's holding you back? Authority? Give up your life so that you can find yourself. The evidence that God is enough, that He's there for you, that He loves you, that He cares for you, that He's brought you to this place today so that you could hear this message for such a time as this. Fear? What's going to happen? What's going to happen? What's going to change? What's holding you back? What's holding you back? Twice in this section of Mark, it says the religious leaders were afraid of the people. The fear of man hindered their movement toward Jesus. And if I, if I had more time, if I had more time... I, 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 would, I would talk to you about how the fear of man hindered my ministry for years. For years. For years. Some of you, somebody just said amen. How rude. Being vulnerable for just a moment, that's a good time to just listen. Their fear of what others would think paralyzed them. It paralyzed them. Their fear of losing face, of losing power, of losing the position, of losing prestige, it condemned them. And so my, 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 my plea for us today is be honest with yourself today. 
Be honest with yourself today. No more lying. How much of your hesitation in trusting Jesus and alleged doubts and unanswered questions are really a mask, too soon, to hide your fear of what faith in Christ might cost you? To mask, to hide your fear of what faith in Christ might cost you socially, culturally, relationally, financially, look once more into the face of this Jesus. Listen once more to the words he speaks. Watch once again how he loves the unlovely. Ponder once more his claim to be God. Be willing to come to Jesus and the end will not disappoint you. I was pondering this as we're in this season of Lent on our way to the cross when Jesus turns uh, and, and heads to Jerusalem. To me, one of the most powerful verses in Scripture is Luke 9.51. You don't have to turn there. It's phenomenal in the King James Version. The ESV keeps true to the words, and, and that's why uh, I love the ESV. But listen to this. Evidence of Jesus. When the days drew near for Him to be taken up, what's, hap- what's happening? When the, day drew, when the days drew near for Jesus to go to the cross, He set His face to go to Jerusalem. Over these next few weeks, as we ponder the life of Christ, as we walk through the, 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 the triumphal entry as we walk through the crucifixion on Good Friday. We'll be right in here. We're going to share in communion together. It's going to be awesome. I can't wait. Uh, always one of, my, one, of my, one of the highlights of my year is that Good Friday service as we ponder on that Saturday what the disciples must have felt as they were lost. Their Savior has been crucified. Everything that He said was come to fruition I come to fruition, and then Sunday morning, the empty tomb, the celebration, Easter, he's resurrected, he has, he, he, the, he has risen, right? But earlier on, Luke 9, 51, he set his face. Now, here's what I want you to see. Here's what I want you to see, the determination of the Savior, Because Jesus knew, Jesus knew the suffering that was going to come in Jerusalem, yet he set his face. Jesus knew the mocking, Jesus knew what was coming in the temple, Jesus knew the betrayal that was about to happen. Jesus knew it all, yet he set his face. And the thing that we must remember, because we know the end of the story, is the why. He could set his face with such determination and urgency to the cross, to Jerusalem, because you were at stake. Because I was at stake. And church, if we need more evidence, if we need more confidence to quiet the fear, if we need more reason to submit ourselves to the authority of a Savior who did that for us, who set His face toward Jerusalem, what's holding you back? What's holding you back? 